This is the Ardella Training Podcast, the leader in innovative strength training for today's fitness enthusiast, coach, trainer, and athlete. The weekly podcast brings you all things strength and performance without the BS so you can train stronger, smarter, and safer, helping you get results. Join the revolution now and become part of the community at ArdellaTraining.com. Ardella Training is dedicated to forging athletic bodies around the world. Here's your host, strength and conditioning specialist and former physical therapist, Scott Ardella. Hey, if you're looking for a new high-quality kettlebell, I've got a recommendation for you. My preferred kettlebell brand, due to the exceptional quality and outstanding price, is the Rogue Kettlebell, which I personally use. I recommend this brand if you're looking to add kettlebells to your collection or get started with your kettlebell training experience. The shape, the feel, and the quality is outstanding, and I highly recommend it. To see the exact kettlebell I use, go to ardellatraining.com slash kettlebell that's r-d-e-l-l-a training.com slash kettlebell you won't find a high quality kettlebell for this price anywhere else so definitely check it out all right guys welcome to the 100th episode of the ardello training podcast i am so glad you're here and i am really excited about this episode first of all i have gray cook joining me for episode number 100. This is going to be a two-part episode series. I think you're going to get a ton of value out of it. Uh, Gray is unbelievable. I mean, if you know who Gray Cook is, I don't have to explain that to you. If you don't know who Gray Cook is, uh, you're in for a big treat because he is a brilliant guy. He's a renowned physical therapist and strength coach. He's the author of The Great Book Movement and so much more. I'm going to tell you all about Gray in just a few minutes. Before I do that, I want to reflect on the past 100 shows and tell you a little bit about what's coming in the future. Now, I am recording this episode on December the 31st, 2014, the last day of 2014. I want to wish you all a great new, happy new year. And here's to a very strong 2015, and I think we're going to all accomplish a lot of great things. Thank you for being a listener to the show. If you've been a longtime listener, I really appreciate you being here. I appreciate your input and your comments and your reviews. If you're a new listener, thank you for being here. Uh, Welcome to the revolution of Ardella Training and the podcast here. And uh, it's just been an amazing 100 episodes. So let me recap things and let's take a look back at uh, the last 100 shows. Now, the show started in December of 2011, and it's really been a constant evolution ever since. And to tell you the truth, it was November of 2013 when I really started to take this show seriously. And... That's when the show went to a once a week format every Wednesday, and it's been an amazing ride ever since. And the podcast is something I've been passionate about since day one, and the passion just builds 
and evolves. And the goal of this show, the goal of the Ardella Training Podcast has never changed. It's always been very simple. It's basically been to make us all better, to make you and I better each and every show. It's to help us all become the best version of ourselves and to always grow and evolve ourselves. That's why I do this show. That's why I'm so passionate about it. And the vision moving forward is to really be the no BS authority in strength and performance training, to be the go-to podcast for reliable training information and to always get better with the show. As a matter of fact, you're going to see some new things coming in 2015. Uh, The show must grow. The show must evolve to be where I want it to be. Now, the numbers have been fantastic. Uh, We've had record numbers of the show in recent months. It's been uh, pretty amazing. And, you know, the Ardella Training Podcast has had 57 guests through 100 episodes, including such amazing people as Dan John, Kelly Sturette, Dr. Stuart McGill, Greg Everett, Tom Venuto, Brett Contreras, Eric Cressy, Dr. Fred Hatfield, Zach Evanesh, Tracy Rifkind, Mark Rifkind, Jason Ferrugia, Rob Wolf, Dave Asprey, Dr. Krista Scott Dixon, Carl Paoli, Jeff Newpert, Diane Fu, Mike Mahler, and so many more amazing people and so many more to come, starting with this episode today with Gray Cook. Now, it's been such an honor and a privilege to speak to all the amazing people, and I really have such great respect for everyone that I've interviewed on the show. And it's been such a pleasure to chat with every guest on the show, spend an hour with them, and have them share their great insight and knowledge with you every week on the show here. We've covered so many topics ranging from sports nutrition, sports psychology, fat loss, movement and mobility, strength training and programming, bodyweight training, kettlebells, barbells and powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, paleo nutrition, muscle building, unconventional training methods, sprinting, and so much more in the 100 episodes. And again, I really feel like we're just scratching the surface on the show at 100 episodes in. Now, a while ago, someone asked me, why do I do the show? And I thought this was kind of a ridiculous question. I mean, why I do it is because I'm so passionate about sharing the messages out there that come across on every episode, the things that I've learned through all of my years of training experience and the messages and philosophies of the guests that come on the show. Again, all the guests here, they're, they're handpicked. These are people that I respect and want them to share their message on the show to help you and to help me, to help us all. The, the podcast and the message, the platform helps people. It's a win-win for everybody, you and I and the guests and, and everyone involved. So it's just an amazing platform. So that's why I do the show. Now, I can tell you that so much time and effort goes behind each and every podcast episode, but I am really committed to it and the feedback has been incredible and certainly the numbers support the growth and the discovery of the Ardella Training Podcast and and this podcast will continue to evolve, grow and get better 
in 2015. So I really value suggestions, comments, and your opinions. So feel free to email me at any time and let me know what you think about the show. And if you have suggestions about how to make it better, email me, let me know. You can reach me at scott at ardellatraining.com. That's scott at R-D-E-L-L-A training.com. And again, I really value your insight. Thank you to those who have left comments in iTunes and Stitcher. I read all the comments and I, I am so grateful for all of the positive comments that have come across. So uh, if you haven't done that, please take a minute and drop in your review about the show in iTunes or Stitcher. It's very easy to do. And again, I thank you so much for all the great comments. So guys, let's get started with episode number 100. I just wanted to take a couple minutes here and just kind of pull things together and really reflect on the past 100 episodes. And I really feel like this show is in the infancy of where I want it to be. But it's been just an amazing journey, an amazing experience, and I hope that you've benefited from it. But it's only going to get better, guys. So so let me tell you about Gray Cook, and I want to encourage you to listen all the way through this podcast episode. Things really start to get deeper in the uh, conversation and certainly with Gray's brilliance and advice as we go. Again, this is a two-part series, so this is just part one, and uh, the next episode will be part two of Gray and I's discussion. At the end of this episode, I'm going to explain why I answered Gray's question the way I did. So I, I thought a lot about the question he asked and why I said what I said in the interview. So listen and hear my response to his question. And at the end, I'm going to tell you why I said what I said. And again, I've thought a lot about this since he asked me that question. So let me tell you about Gray Cook, just in case you're unfamiliar with who he is. Gray is the author of a groundbreaking book called Movement that was uh, put out in 2010. And uh, it's really an exceptional book. And if you haven't read it, of course, I highly recommend that book. But it is a very, very uh, deep dive in understanding human movement. Excellent book. Gray is also the author of Athletic Body and Balance, which he wrote prior to Movement. Gray is a practicing, renowned physical therapist and orthopedic certified specialist. He is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and a kettlebell instructor. He is the founder of Functional Movement Systems, which promotes the concept of movement pattern screening and assessment, and his work and ideas are at the forefront in fitness, conditioning, injury prevention, and rehabilitation. He is one of the brilliant minds in the industry, and I couldn't be more happy and excited to have Gray Cook join me for an exciting episode number 100 and to celebrate this milestone episode 100 on the Ardella Training Podcast. So guys, let's just jump right in and uh, I would definitely encourage you to take notes, listen to Gray's insight and probably go back and re-listen to this a second time because he thinks fast, he talks fast, but it's amazing content. And at the end of the uh, session here, the end of session one, he talks about the differences between the Russian style swing and the American style swing. And this is really, really a brilliant insight that uh, you'll have a better understanding of the different styles of the swing when you hear Gray explain it. And I couldn't agree more, by the way. So let's uh, get started with this interview with Gray Cook. 
All right, so Greg Cook is here today, and I just want to say what an honor it truly is to do this interview. I know this is going to be an outstanding episode for you, the listener, and uh, I would highly encourage you to get out your pen and paper, get ready to take some notes, and Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Way to set the bar high, man. It's like, all right, here's Greg going to make a three-pointer on one foot blindfolded. <laughs> uh, let's have some, let's have some fun and uh, educate the audience here. I think they're really going to love it without question. So let's jump right in here, Gray. And I want to ask you, Movement, which is really a game-changing book, it came out in 2010. What has changed since you wrote that book? I think I have put pressure on myself to make the first three chapters of that book more user-friendly and more simple. I I did not have the opportunity, and I think the book was out at the time, but I did not have the opportunity to take what Simon Sinek said in, in the book, Start With Why, and put myself in a hot box and sweat out all the unnecessary narrative and say, why are we doing this? How is the best way to do it? And knowing those two things, what should we do? And so I have, I've actually put myself through quite a bit of mental calisthenics, taking the first three narrative pages, uh, narrative chapters of movement and saying, okay, if, if this is going to be the game changer for Anybody other than the early adopters, the, pe- the people who get it, the people who probably had the same frustrations and same discontent with the current state of the way we view fitness and we view health, I know I got the early adopters because even though I probably could have been a more eloquent author, I could have had more graphs and data and bullet points, I think the people who were hungry for a cleaner message got that. But I also found that many of the people who were inspired by what I did in movement could not articulate that to you on an elevator speech. Basically, you got four floors to sell somebody. Did you do it or not? Because I'll be honest with you, uh, I've been in that situation with a NFL general manager or a high-ranking military official or another lecturer who thought we disagreed, and I had four floors on an elevator to explain to them we don't disagree. I'm coming at it from a different angle, and these are some of the things that that different angle presents to us. So the the back part of movement, the way and why we do the movement screen and the way and why we do the SFMA is completely intact. I think I have pressed myself to become a better communicator in a more logical development model. So I really went back to two things, the Simon Sinek challenge of what is your why statement, and I also looked at sort of uh, Maslow, the, the hierarchies of human motivation, and applied them to movement. So I looked deep into psychology because the thing that we left out of our analysis of movement, our interaction with movement, is movement is only slightly seen in a biomechanics lab. Movement is a behavior. Two people can have the exact same joint restriction and opt or choose to move differently around that. Their motivations may be the same. i got to get from point A to point B. Their abilities and behaviors may be different. So there's not much in movement science that really categorizes people in movement behaviors. 
but every other place in education, psychology, human, you know, group dynamic and management, we always try to compartmentalize those behaviors that are dysfunctional and those behaviors that are at least adequate. Because what I find in fitness is we look for optimal answers to everything. Most of us got to where we are without anything optimal. You just followed the laws of natural selection. At each stage of your development, you didn't fail. Didn't mean you were successful. You just didn't fail. So the said principle, your adaptation to the imposed demands, the specific adaptation you go through, you get to play at the next level. The next level is going to beat you around a little bit, uh, but it's not going to injure you in such a way that you can't bounce back. If you skip three levels, you're going to get your, your lunch handed to you. Right. And so, you know, the whole point of, of this, this process is you've got to check a non-failure box at your basic health. You've got to check a non-failure box at your basic movement. You've got to check a non-failure box at at least the movement efficiency you want to be in and the group you want to be in. Yes. And then if you want to become elite in any direction, you need to check the box of all the other people who are already there. If you're going into that 5K or ultra marathon or kettlebell competition and you haven't checked those boxes yet, everybody you're going to compete with today has at least not failed to check those boxes, then you could be an outlier and you could win, but I ain't going to bet on you. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so what would you say, um, what do we need to know about the functional movement screen, the FMS? In other words, what is concrete? What is the, the one big thing that everybody needs to know about the FMS? All right. This, this is what I came up against uh, a long, long time ago. And I'll, I'll ask you this and, and, and let you sort of embrace this dilemma with me. Do you feel more confident in mobility testing or stability testing? Right now, as a professional, with the background that you have, with the work that you've done, with the new data that you looked at, if you had to say, you yourself and then other professionals, are, are we a little bit tighter and more reliable on mobility testing or stability testing? What do you think? There's such a balance between mobility and stability. So I, I think that stability may be a little bit easier to assess. It's I'm, only easier to assess if you're looking at one component of stability. So if we look at the sensory input necessary to stabilize, we can check that. If we look at the mental processing, the reflex stabilization, we can check that. And if we look at the appropriate action that comes out of sensation perception and then what you do with it, a perturbation causes a balance reaction or a fall. It's multifactorial. We can prove one aspect of stability, but then leave the other out. And I, I'll never forget when I started looking at a, a textbook chapter Shirley Sarman wrote and saw one of the same things that I saw in Stu McGill's work. I think Shirley and Stu were reporting, this is how you test lumbar stability. And even though I consider them both visionaries and actual professional friends, colleagues, and, and peers, people I look up to, they failed to make one vital statement, knowing that their work would be viewed not just by physical therapists, but by chiropractors, athletic trainers, personal trainers, strength coaches. This is how you check lumbar stability. 
once you've cleared the joints above and below. They didn't say that. And that's the first rule of orthopedics, you know? Right. Clear the joints above and below and then compare it bilaterally whenever possible. This is James Syriac's 101. This is non-surgical orthopedics at its root. Right. So don't go in and tell me you checked lumbar stability when I have a hip that won't immediately rotate because they will pass that test. They will demonstrate lumbar stability in a sitting position or planking position. But when you ask them to go up a staircase to do a deadlift or attempt a wide balance test on one leg, you won't see the lumbar stability that you measured to be adequate in the isolated test. What we've got in stability testing is, I think, a false sense of security. I haven't been impressed by stability testing, and usually to be effective, stability testing has to have so many prerequisites, it's, it's almost inefficient. So it's, to me, if I were sitting on the witness stand trying to argue for somebody's mobility or stability, even though we know that physical therapists aren't really impressively reliable with goniometry, goniometry is reliable. Right. You know, and, 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 and motion capture is reliable. And, and the, the new improvements we've had in measuring flexibility and joint mobility are pretty reliable. And secondly, when I'm measuring your mobility, it doesn't require you to process anything, and it doesn't require a feedback loop. See, if you've got poor proprioception, your stability sucks. If you've got poor stabilizer, muscle, strength, work capacity, endurance, your stability sucks. How do I know what to work on? Because your output as in stabilizing sucks. And I don't know whether you have poor input, poor processing, or poor output. Whereas in mobility, all we got to agree on is that guy's knee doesn't bend. Right. Now, here's what I started finding. What if that guy's knee doesn't bend in squatting, but does bend in lunging and stepping. Is it a mobility problem? It cannot be because a mobility problem should be consistent through all activities that ask for greater than, say, 70 degrees of knee flexion. Right. So when I started seeing people who measured as stiff in one position or pattern and actually did not show me that stiffness or limitation in another position or pattern, I'm like, ooh, that's inconsistent. I'm going to put that over here. I'm going to call that a motor control problem. And under that umbrella of motor control, we can have stability, proprioception, coordination. All the things that we know add to good stability, reflex stabilization. So what I found is in my own practice, a mobility problem, number one, if you just follow the rules, if you line up your goniometer, if you really take a little more time, you can be pretty reliable. And I, I had a clinic with 20 employees running all over the place, and we were spot-on reliable with mobility. We were using computerized inclinometry and other little, little gadgets, but we got tight on mobility. And when we saw that mobility was fine or mobility measures were inconsistent among different positions, we put those people in a stability category. We still didn't know what to do with them. But we knew they didn't need mobs, and we knew they didn't need stretching, and we knew they didn't need foam rolls because one group passed the mobility test. The other group passed some and failed others depending on load and position. So we're like, all right, a true mobility problem 
should be consistent and it should be measurable. So if both of these criteria aren't met, we can by default say it is a motor control problem. But I still didn't have any good motor control tests to use. I could, I could do some pretty neat things like I could put your uh, muscle in mid-range and check, check, check your strength or I could put the whole joint muscle complex in end range and check you there. That's a good snapshot of stability and we do a lot of that in our medical um, medical workshops where we talk about that. Imagine me testing your rotator cuff for internal, external, mid-range, but then taking you to end range. End range requires a lot more stabilization, a lot more proprioception, there's a lot more joint incongruity, and your prime movers are at a disadvantage. So end range joint testing, both pushing them further into the end range and trying to pull them out, is a great little strength snapshot of stability. But once again, we were making up our own tests. So here's how I solved the problem. Let's look at movement. Let's, let's forget about mobility and stability. Let's look at your movement. If your movement falls below the cut, if you can't lunge this deep, if you can't squat this well, if you can't balance on one leg this long, then let's all agree that's dysfunctional. Let's just draw a line in the sand based on whatever evidence we have. The squat test in the FMS, we based on normal range of motion. Not one joint in the deep squat on the FMS takes you beyond what the American Medical Association says you should be able to do with a joint. We just ask you to do it with all your joints at the same time, which is function. Same thing with the lunch. When we looked at the hurdle step, we wanted to make a little, a little test that forced you on one leg almost more than five seconds. And if most people don't rush through the hurdle step, it's gonna force them into single leg stance for at least five seconds. Well, some research papers say we should have at least 20 seconds and most agree that a minimum of 10. So if you can't get over my little hurdle, then you either don't have the mobility to do it, which we're gonna find somewhere else on the screen, or if this is the only test that gets you, you ain't got the stability to be in the air for five seconds. Right. You know, knock the hurdle over. So either way, I'm going to catch it. But my point was, let's forget about mobility and motor control. Go right to movement. If your movement patterns are good, we probably shouldn't go down those rabbit holes of mobility and motor control. If your movement patterns are good, we should push you more into performance and see where your failure is because you gave me the requisite minimum. Now, if your movement patterns are bad, that's a different story. Let's go down the rabbit hole, and now let's do our mobility test. If we find a mobility problem, we must address it because mobility is a subcomponent of motor control. If something's stuck, you can't control it. So I cannot define your motor control unless mobility is in play. If it's not in play, then one of the prerequisites for motor control is not available. So I must put the spark plugs in the car before I can tell you how much horsepower it has. If we look at your mobility and your mobility is good and your movement patterns are bad, what are we left with? We're left with motor control. So even though I don't think the current state of medical evaluation, performance, or fitness evaluation has really given us some respectable motor control tests that are as easy to accomplish as mobility tests, I think we'll eventually get there. But since we don't have anything to say you've got poor motor control, we do it like an algebra problem. If your mobility is good 
and your movement patterns, your fundamental movement patterns are bad, X must be motor control. Now we can start training motor control. Oh my God, we're training motor control, yet we don't have a good gauge for motor control. Yes, you do. The same movement pattern that you couldn't do before, now you can do. So it's a backward way to do it, but in the presence of, in my opinion, very, very poor comprehensive motor control stability testing, right. it is the next best way to do it. We rule out mobility and establish poor movement patterns at a fundamental level. What else can it be? You've got the available range of motion. You simply can't control it. So the movement screen is the entry point. If we try to make mobility or stability testing the entry point, we will find false positives. We will find things we want to fix that don't need to be fixed because we're operating largely on a perfection or optimal model instead of saying, what is the minimum effective amount of range of motion it takes to do a deep squat? What's the minimum effective amount of range of motion it takes to do a lunge? So what people don't see is they want to come at movement screen technology and go mobility plus stability equals movement. We can't effectively and reliably check stability in isolation because it doesn't work in isolation. So it's better to make a movement pattern, a screen, a screen that puts you in a category good enough to move to the next level. Because if your movement screen is good enough, I want to see you with loads, momentums, across time, and with stress. The minute, the minute your movement is at least competent, I want to see how much I can push your competency toward failure in, in good categories like power, speed, agility, quickness, work capacity, stuff like that. So that's in the problem with the movement screen. We designed it from the bottom up. A good score on the movement screen doesn't really predict that much. A bad score on the movement screen means you're probably not going to do as well as everybody else at the next level. And if you think about it, isn't that what education is? We establish yes. competency, competency in the third grade before we allow you into the fourth grade knowing that the best way to ensure that you don't fail in the fourth grade is demonstrating competency in the third grade. We don't, we don't tier our fitness or our movement development that way. A test should establish competency at one level and at the same time predict non-failure. Not success at the next level, just right. non-failure, right. which reduces risk. So let's summarize this whole philosophy that you just talked about. What would you say to this question, what the FMS is not? The FMS is not an assessment or a test. It is a screen. It is designed to categorize people. And in the grand scheme of things, it measures nothing. And even though it's a numeric scale, the numeric scale is simply to cleanly put you in a category. That category will demand action uh, for greater assessment. So okay. the screen does its job simply establishing are you dysfunctional in fundamental patterns or not. And a test, something like the Y-balance test or some fitness testing, could then give you that scale. And here's the way I like to, to do it. If you've got a kid in your house, you can see the pattern of a fever on that child. You can see it in their eyes and their face. You can feel it on their forehead. You can look at that in their posture. My kid's got a fever, okay? Now, you don't need a thermometer to tell you that, dude. That's the movement screen. We see the pattern of movement dysfunction 
However, we don't know the severity of the dysfunction. So in my model, I will use a screen to see if you've got the pattern of dysfunction, just like I'll look at one of my girls to see if she's got a fever. I then go to the closet and get the thermometer because the difference in a 101 fever and a 104 fever determines my next action. Yeah. We're either headed to the ER or we're getting some Pedialyte, right? <laughs> right. So that's right. the Y balance test. It is, it is the single best test I've seen from both practice and research to quarter the body, to quarter the core into the four points of really most of your motor control, your left and right leg and your left and right arm. So I, I'm a parent, so I can see the pattern of a fever. I'm a trainer, and with the movement screen, I can see the pattern of dysfunction. All I know is dysfunction. I use something like the Y-Balance test kit to establish how bad that is. Then I may want to go and say, you know what? I think this is a mobility problem. Let's check that. Ooh, that ankle's locked up. That's why they're flunking all these tests. That's easy. But if, if you ask me as a parent, Gray, where did the child's fever come from? And what else is going on in the presence of that fever? Neither the screen, my observation of the pattern, or the thermometer can tell me where the fever came from and what else is going on. That's when I go find the PA or the pediatrician or the nurse practitioner and say, what's going on here? Right. And they do an assessment. They weigh the same patterns that I saw against the same test that we both did, and then they added additional information their clinical judgment, some lab testing, what's going on in the community right now as far as colds and flus, and that's what an assessment is. An assessment is an educated judgment call agreeing on the category the screen placed you in and acknowledging the data from the test. Very often in medicine, we will take patients in the same category with some of the same tests, and based on their history, and based on a few other variables about their environment, we may act differently. That's an assessment. So recognize a fever, that's a screen. Measure a fever, that's a test. Diagnose where it came from, where it's going, and what else is going on, that's an assessment. Excellent. Now, Gray, I wanted to ask you this. I've seen you with other movement experts, uh, Kelly Sturette, Dr. Stuart McGill. Where do you and other uh, experts in movement align in thinking? Uh, over beer. <laughs> we we show up nice. to work, and we, just like Miller time for our construction crew, we appreciate a beer at 6.02. Um, <laughs> we, we are, I see in Stu McGill a passion, a passion for sharing information. I see in Kelly Starrett a passion with a dose of Red Bull on the exact same <laughs> message. The difference is uh, Stu came at his knowledge of movement through a very academic, research-based perspective. Kelly, I see in Kelly a passion for dispensing good advice, just like some nutritionist will write a book and dispense a bunch of good advice and pretty much say, you don't need a full-time nutritionist. You need some good principles yes. to, to operate your diet. And that's what Kelly's doing. I think Kelly would be the first person to agree that if you log on to Mobility Wad and you assume your low back is tight because your low back hurts when you train, that would be inappropriate. But if you want to apply some low back mobility exercises, most of what he's showing you is safe. 
It's what you do after the foam roll or the ball or something that may not be safe. But Kelly would be the first one to tell you if self-help isn't working, it's a good chance you're, you're aiming the right gun at the wrong thing. And so I've, I've, I've got this little, little uh, saying that I, I try to tell all my interns. Do not cut what can be untied. Do not untie what can be adjusted. Do not adjust what can be directed. And do not direct what can be self-directed. So if we look, self-direction is, is self-help. Direction is coaching. Adjustment, all right, is entry-level therapeutic intervention. Sometimes just, hey, let me, let me help you with that. Go on your way. Untie, that's pretty extensive manual therapy work. <laughs> Get in there with some needles and some, uh, you know, ART and grafting techniques and things like that. And cutting is surgery. If you look at each level of that, you give up your independence to an expert and trust them in their endeavor. So, you know, if you ask me, a surgeon is practicing at one end, and Kelly is really trying to make you educated at the other end. But one thing that we don't do in a self-directed situation or a self-help situation is sometimes acknowledge the fact that, that we can't evaluate ourselves at all. Only a few of us are so smart and body-wise that we can take our signs and symptoms and do the right thing. So if you get a problem on the front end and, and practice a lot of what Mobility Watt is preaching, believe it or not, you will stay on the straight and narrow. Here's how Kelly, I think, covers both mobility and motor control. He says, check your mobility, all right? Get it right, get your mobility good, and then lift with good technique. Lifting with good technique is some of the best stability work in the world. Absolutely. And that's what Dan John and I talked about in our new DVD, and Kelly and I have had quite a few conversations where, you know what, just because you've got the pattern to do a deadlift, the pattern to do a hip hinge, doesn't mean you need to load the deadlift yet. Bend over and use that pattern to pick up a submax weight and show me how far your farmer's carry is. And in doing that farmer's carry, you will ready your body for the loads of respectable deadlifting. But many times, if we have the hip mobility and back stability to deadlift, we go right into patterning loads. We should carry before we lift. All right? And you might say, well, that's stupid. You've got to lift it to carry it. Only got to lift it once. Most submax loads, I can lift once and carry for a long time. So biologically, we are made to carry and do a lot more work capacity early in life. You watch babies walk around with a Tonka truck that's a third their body weight. They're not going to stand there and deadlift it up and down to entertain themselves. They're going to pick it up once and move it to the sandbox, move it to the mud puddle, move it to the grass. Right. So biologically, carry is built into us, and we just ignore it and go right into patterning, and therefore we build in training for our prime movers before our stabilizers know what to do. Your stabilizers get a friggin' workout <laughs> when you carry stuff. And the limiting factor in doing a farmer's carry or some of the overhead front rack and suitcase carries we did in that DVD is stability failure, not prime mover failure. And that is the endurance that I need to check. That's the work capacity I need to check. Because the minute you dump your stabilizers, you're strong enough to do another set. But that set will lack integrity, and that's the set you're getting ready to imprint on your brain. And I refuse to let you do that set. There's no good can come of it other than caloric expenditure. And I can get that with jump rope 
even though you can't deadlift anymore. Great. We're going to come back to the FMS at the end. A uh, couple of different topics that I wanted to ask you about, so I want to make sure that we have time for everything. So the Essentials of Coaching and Training DVD with Dan John, uh, you talked about the importance of continuums in performance. And this is actually something I'm really big on, and even before I saw this, I'm wondering if you can talk about that. You had a really uh, important continuum with the kettlebell spring, swing in particular, but uh, can you just tell us about the importance of continuums in training? Yeah, continuums are, are really a representation, and Kelly uses this word a lot, of archetypes of movement. I use, you hear me use the word pattern? You'll hear Kelly use the word archetype. The archetype is sort of the ideal philosophical embodiment of a squat, of a press, of a push, of a throw. The pattern to me is that measurable thing that makes it possible. So, you know, Kelly and I, if you guys could tune in to just some of our freestyling conversations, you'd hear two adults in the house of females expressing their ADD at light speed. And it's, you know, we're just, we're just, just changing, changing words around. A continuum to me represents, um, in its purest form, how a baby will roll before they crawl, crawl before they, they kneel and squat and squat before they walk and walk before they run. And if we could take that and press it to a move like a kettlebell swing or rock climbing or throwing a javelin, we would see that most people are having difficulty expressing that top-tier ability that they wish to have because they skipped over something. So I think it's, it's pretty obvious to most coaches and trainers that a good deadlift is a precursor to a kettlebell swing. So Dan and I didn't really have a lot of argument there uh, articulating that to a group. And I think most of the people who've embraced my work on movement screening would say, teaching a deadlift when somebody's leg raise is a one, which means there's no way they can hit a 90-degree hip hinge without rounding their back. The available mobility isn't there. So I think everybody gets that you should approach a deadlift with adequate range of motion. Everybody also gets that a slow pattern like a deadlift should precede a fast pattern like a swing. And we can take that platform of a swing as I learned in my RKC under Brett Jones and Pavel, and incorporate that swing platform into a snatch, into a clean, into so many other beautiful, even higher order, more complex kettlebell moves. Dan and I laid out that entire continuum to say a continuum is not a progression. A progression is the real-life trip that I'm going to take you on. It's going to have detours, a few U-turns, and maybe some rest stops. We may even break down on the way, okay? The continuum is what Google Maps prints out so me and you can both get to Chicago. That's where we need to be. We need to hit those dots. A detour is what happens when we get injured, sidelined, or our body just doesn't adapt as quickly as we'd like it. We've got a different mental time schedule than our physical body has. So a continuum is a template for how we're going to get there. And a progression is what we owe the person who is paying us to guide them on that trip. It will never be a dot-by-dot connection because we're dealing with human behavior, schedules, fluctuations in the economy, cold and flu season and summer vacation. 
We, that's, <laughs> that's why they call us pros, because right. we've got to deal with all that BS while still trying to get you to your goal. So the number one thing I try to articulate is you don't stair-step somebody through a continuum just because Greg Cook said so. You watch their level of competency at each step. And if they're incompetent at that step, hold the line. All right? Hold the line. You're not going to get them to Chicago with three wheels. And if you do, it's going to be a horrible trip. Right. Stop and fill up that flat. So you owe them the integrity of each of those necessary steps so they arrive safely uh, in Chicago. Now, the, once you realize that your progression should follow a continuum, but will be, you know, it won't follow that, that line. It'll be up and down and up and down, more like a human behavioral line. Once you agree with that, the missing link that most fitness and strength conditioning and even rehabilitation professionals have is they forget their carries. They, a, a, a Turkish getup is a vertical carry. A farmer's walk is a very, very robust, posturally aligned carry. I'll never forget, people used to come to me all the time, we work with a lot of older females. What's a great postural exercise? Farmer's walk. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm like, yeah. well, I was sort of wondering, you know, about little bands over their shoulders so they could stand there and do retraction and strengthen their rhomboids. How do you know their rhomboids are weak? Well, look at their posture. Let's test their rhomboids. Their rhomboids are strong. Their rhomboids aren't responsible for their posture. Their rhomboids are responsible for retraction. They're not weak in retraction. Why are we training their rhomboids? Because it'll hold them up. Their rhomboids aren't made to hold them up. Your spinal erectors and your TA are made to hold you up. Why would we want your rhomboids to hold you up? Strengthening your rhomboids to give you good posture is like making you walk on your toes all day so you'll be a good jumper one day. No, you'll just be better walking on your toes. That's not going to make you a good jumper, even though good jumpers have very robust calves. See, see, so it's that kinesiology 101 that both shows us how to read a map, but then turns us into a friggin' tool at the same time because we're so busy looking at the muscle map, we forget to appreciate motion. Most, most expert dancers 200 years ago and most martial artists 200 years ago rarely knew one muscle name. They still teach you to dance beautifully and break boards with your fist not by knowing all the muscles in your body, but by appreciating movement. So we've been teaching movement way longer than we've known anatomy. And learning anatomy should only enhance that, but it didn't, because we got so hung up on the, on the anatomy that we literally think training your right QL will stabilize your back. No, stabilizing your back will train your right QL if it's deficient. If it's the weakest link, it'll get trained. Great. Another thing you talked about in the DVD, I wanted to ask you about this as well. Uh, You made several great points and discussion topics in the DVD, of course, but you talked about the differences in style with the swing, the Russian style or hard style kettlebell swing and projecting horizontally compared to the overhead style of the swing. I would love to ask you to, to comment a little bit more speaking from a motion standpoint and biomechanics standpoint about the differences and kind of the continuums with that. The classic style, the, the, the hard style kettlebell swing that, that I learned in the RKC, I think is, is very much part of Pavel's uh, wheelhouse, both in his early work with the RKC and some of the books and DVDs he did through Dragon Door and probably still currently part of his platform was Strong First. Pavel did the math 
a lot of people come into kettlebell swing that haven't been movement streamed, that didn't have access to that technology. Pavel's way of teaching you how to drive a race car is he put guardrails up. He teaches you a hard style swing, not because it's the only way to swing. It's the only way to teach the masses how to swing without creating a large amount of injuries. A swing is simply a swing. It's not really an Olympic event. It's a platform for many, many powerful things, from sprinting to hitting a golf ball to doing an overhand uh, volleyball serve. The swing can be seen in all of that. But the swing in and of itself is simply a good, powerful representation of how the hips and core should work together effortlessly to unload the arms so that we can reserve our arms for those technical adjustments when throwing a punch or something like that. So the, the arm action in a kettlebell swing, the way I learned it, was on the pull down. I am hiking the kettlebell down from the floated position that I generated in front of me. So now we get introduced to this overhead swing. Where do I think that came from? I think that came from people who saw people do uh, snatches and cleans and presses and said, ooh, I love to see that kettlebell over the head. It represents such a good pattern, such a good archetype. How can I, with no investment or technique, get my kettlebell overhead? Oh, I'll just add 50% to the swing. But what you realize is your release of energy is at about kettlebell horizontal. Everything that happens between horizontal and overhead in an overhead swing is wasted motion. So I'm going to come back to you and say, listen, you're going to hit a golf ball 300 yards with this amount of backswing. And you're like, yeah, but you know what? I want to go about two more feet into my backswing. You're still going to hit it 300 yards. Yeah, but it just looks so much more like tiger when I go two foot into my backswing. Agreed. But that extra two foot costs you time, adds increased fatigue, offers significantly more biomechanical variables. It's harder to reproduce, less efficient to get the same result. Tell me again why you're adding two foot to your backswing. It can't be for biomechanical reasons, and the training effect isn't worth the risk you're going into. So a lot of people have, have tried to debate this, this thing I said about the swing. The only difference is uh, I've got an advantage. We did both swings in the, in the biomechanics lab at Duke University in the K lab, and we said, don't, don't do an overhead swing bad. We got some people who could do that move very, very well. We also got some people that could do a hard-style swing very, very well. So give us your best. And here's the cool thing. With a force plate right under your feet, you generate the same amount of power with a hard-style horizontal swing as you do going over your head. What's the difference? The difference is all that extra motion when you go overhead, for the majority of people who don't have unbelievably great mobility, they employ a little bit of lumbar hyperextension and a little bit of forward head when that momentum goes overhead. Right. We never want you to lose your plank in a hard style swing. That's, that's what's protecting you in this unbelievably productive metabolic set. So if you lose your plank just to get overhead to finish each rep, you're missing the whole point of doing the swing in the first place. So there's only a few people I've ever seen good enough to do an overhead swing 
beautifully. And my question is, why don't you just do a snatch? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so don't combine two beautiful moves and think the combination is going to be, you know, I like pizza, I like ice cream, not in the same bowl. So if you've got a great swing, my question to you is, why don't you go on a six-week journey to do such a good kettlebell snatch that somebody who has probably learned from the best or somebody who is the best would look at you and say, that's a good snatch. So that's, that's been my point all along. Biomechanically and metabolically and from a safety standpoint, there would be no reason to add anything to the swing that Pavel has given us because it's not an end to itself. It's simply a safe way to train power and metabolism to create a platform for more advanced kettlebell lifts or more sports-specific skills. So the extra 50% added takes more time. I would rather you can, if we, if we did uh, three sets of swings and you're doing them hard style as opposed to overhead, you can almost fit in. By the time you get to the end, you can almost fit in an additional set of hard style swings with a higher metabolism just by all the time you save instead of going overhead. So I would rather have a greater volume with more technical correctness and more protection to you than I would that overhead. And if overhead is really, really important to you, show me a great Turkish get-up first. Show me an unbelievable overhead carry routine with good symmetry. Show me some cleans and presses that a strong first instructor, instructor would be proud of. And guess what? You've got all the necessary ingredients to do a snatch. Now, go practice it knowing very well that you won't be good at it today. Most people can't handle that failure, so they just keep overhead swinging. Yeah. Isn't that what, what going more complex is? Isn't that what practice is? It's exposing ourselves to a higher degree of failure feedback so that we can get better. You know, hitting golf balls and hitting golf balls in front of your local pro, two completely different things. Why? <laughs> because when you're by yourself, you think you're way more successful than you are. When you're standing in the presence of a pro, you're not nearly as successful as you think you are. So you're exposing yourself to greater feedback. That feedback indicates that you failed a little bit. A lot of people just don't want to own that. They want to show up and be patted on the back for the energy expenditure, not the technical precision. I'm the other way. The technical precision is why you're here. The energy, energy expenditure is the side effect that you're expressing to get that. All right, guys, we are going to wrap up with part one of the interview with what Gray just said about the comparisons of the Russian style and American style kettlebell swing. I thought that was great analysis and insight there. And I hope you got a ton of value out of this interview session. Again, I would probably encourage you to go back and re-listen through to the things that Gray discussed, especially if you're a coach or trainer to really understand the um, depth of what Gray discussed in this interview session. And I will be releasing the second part uh, at the latest would be next week on the usual Wednesday date, although it may come before that as a special edition. I'm just not sure if I can uh, get to it uh, before the week is out. So at the latest would be next Wednesday, just to let you know. Uh, also, so let me just explain why I said what I said to Gray's question. Gray's question was, do you feel more confident in mobility or stability testing? I thought that the obvious answer would have been mobility. And I said stability. And I think that is because 
I think with mobility, it's not always a mobility issue. It, it always seems to be a mobility issue, but it can be a motor control issue. It can also be a motor control issue with a st- stability uh, problem as well. But I think, again, the obvious answer would have been mobility. And I feel like I'm really in tune with looking at stability in terms of is it stable or is it not stable? If it's not mobile, I really don't know if it's a mobility issue or a motor control issue. So I think, again, if if I had to choose, which I felt more confident in assessing, I think stability would be the answer. And that's why I said what I said. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think it really goes back to your level of, uh, of training and where you're coming from and, and how you look at the movement screen, if you're doing the movement screen, of course. So anyway, I thought a lot about that since Gray asked that question, and I felt like I needed to explain why I said what I said. So guys, that's it. Again, uh, great session with Gray Cook. Look for the second half of the interview coming on episode number 101. So again, thank you guys for joining me for 100 episodes of the Ardella Training Podcast and joining me in this milestone episode. It's uh, really just an honor to be here and to do this for you. So look for great things to come. Happy New Year, and we'll talk again soon. That's it, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.